0: The following audio is from Redeemer Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee. More information about Redeemer Church can be found on our website at RedeemerTN.org. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to take it, turn to the book of 1 Peter in chapter 2 where Bryant was just reading for us. Uh, Here at Redeemer, we work through books of the Bible. That's our approach to preaching. That's our approach um, to learning God's Word together, and so... um, We are in a section of this book, 1 Peter, that I think is very timely for us. This this book was written uh, by a man named Peter. Peter walked with Jesus. Peter was one of the the followers of Jesus who was in his inner circle of sorts. Uh, Peter betrayed Jesus. Peter was restored by Jesus. And Peter... Preached the gospel of Jesus boldly, often at the cost of suffering, and ultimately at the cost of his own life. And so here's Peter writing to the church, and what he's doing in this particular section of the scripture is he's saying to the church, Know who you are. Know who you are. Because there's a theme in the scripture. And something we hold very dear here at Redeemer, and it works like this, that what we believe to be true about ourselves shapes what we think, shapes how we act, and shapes how we live. What we think to be true about ourselves shapes how we live. And Peter, in this particular piece of the Scripture, is wanting to go to great lengths to convince the church that they are God's people. That they are God's household. That God is at work in them. That God will never leave them. That God's promises are theirs because of Jesus. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, if Redeemer Church is a a group of people committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are God's household and Christ is our cornerstone and Christ brings all the promises and all the blessings and all the work of God to us and God desires to use us for His kingdom work. So Peter is convinced that if these Christians can be reminded who they are, they will be able to endure hardship. If they can be restored in who they are, they can be faithful. And this is what I want us to hear today at Redeemer Church. If we're in Christ... If we stand upon His gospel and upon His word, we are God's people and God's blessings and God's promises stand true for us. He will be with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will be for us because we're His people. And He wants to use us. So in my grand plan, which was wrong, I wanted this to be the first passage that I ever preached here at this new location. But the Lord used a fire alarm and a few other plans to make sure that it was the second passage I preached here. If you don't know the story, we'll we'll fill you in later. But here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want us to believe. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, God become flesh, is our everything. He's our hope. He's our Redeemer. He's our Lord. And in Him, we find life. We find help. We find hope. We find meaning. We find mission. We find purpose. So if you're here today and you're like, man, I don't really do sermons. This is what I want you to take away. This is your, your one truth. Jesus Christ is the Lord of everything. And Jesus Christ is building His church. And Jesus Christ Desires to use his church to expand his work in the world. That's our truth this morning. And so I want us to focus on who we are because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done. So for my note-taking friends, your first point this morning, our first point this morning the hope of the church. There's a siren. It's not for us. We should probably get used to that, don't you think? I mean, like, we sit right beside a fire hall, like, we should probably get used to that. I should become faithful enough of a pastor that I can just preach right through it, but I'm not there yet, okay? I'm just not there yet. Our first hope, our first point, the hope of the church. This passage begins by making clear that Jesus Christ is the center of everything. The language of the passage says that He is the church's cornerstone. Now, I don't know much about building, restoration, foundations, weight limits, holding walls up, or any of the like. And many of you who have worked with me over the last couple months know that. But here's what I know. The cornerstone of a building holds the building up. If it's in place correctly, the building's strong. If it's in place incorrectly, the building wobbles. It's a little off-center, and the walls aren't exactly straight, and the building's not as strong as it should be. And if the cornerstone is yanked out, the building comes down. At least the way they built things in the Greco-Roman era. So, when Peter says Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, what he is saying is Jesus Christ is everything. I want to show you this from the scripture, but let me just drive the point home before I do. What Peter's saying is if there's no Jesus, there's no church. If Jesus isn't the redeeming, saving Son of God, there is no church and there's no people of God and there's no hope for the world. What he's saying is, if you as the people who claim to be the followers of Jesus lose or forsake Jesus, you've lost or forsaken everything. What the church is, what Redeemer Church is, if you're visiting with us today, what we would invite you to is not a group of people who think we're morally superior, not a group of people who believe that we have it all figured out, but what we would invite you to are a group of people who, despite our sin, despite our failings, despite our shortcomings, despite our rebellion, have met God's grace in the person of Jesus, and He has changed us. He's made us. His people. Sounds great. Now let's make sure that that's in the Scripture. By the way, if you're visiting, we do a lot of that here at Redeemer. Like, that sounds great, but let's make sure it's in the Bible. Because if it's not in the Bible, don't listen to me. If it's in the Bible, I'm wrong. So look at verse 4. Who's Peter writing to? He says, As you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So who's Peter addressing? He's addressing those who come to God through Jesus Christ. That's who's receiving this letter. That's who he's talking to. So to put that in modern vernacular, he's writing to the church. And he's saying that in Jesus is your hope and in Jesus is your identity. So look what he says. He says Jesus is the living stone. He is the stone of the house that gives life. He was rejected by men. Peter's referring to Jesus' betrayal, His death, His beating, His going to the cross to bear the sins of the world. But He was rejected by men. But all of that had a purpose because in God's sight, He was chosen and precious. And so then Peter quotes... From the book of Isaiah, chapter 28, about Jesus. And this is in verse 6. And he says, Behold, I am laying in Zion, that is in Jerusalem, in the place where I am worshipped, I am laying a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. So what Peter's saying is, Jesus Christ is God's one means of salvation, of restoration, of reconciliation, of hope, of mercy, of grace, and of peace. In Christ is your hope. And if you are in Christ, you will not be put to shame. If you like to write in your Bible... Take that that last line there of verse 6. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And highlight that. Because I believe when God makes promises to His people, we need to hear them and receive them and believe them. And so in these few verses, Peter has told us that Jesus is alive, Jesus gives life, and Jesus will never allow those who belong to Him to be eternally put to shame. So whatever you face in this life, Jesus will be with you and he will vindicate you in the end. Whatever you endure as hardship as a follower of Christ in this life, Jesus is with you and in the end he will vindicate you. Whatever happens to Redeemer Church, as the people of God, whatever suffering, whatever hardship might come our way, Jesus is with us and in the end he will vindicate us because he will never allow our faith in him to be put To shame. Our hope is Christ. It's Christ. And nothing else. So can I be kind of in-house and selfish for a minute? We have a building now, and we don't have to set up and tear down. But our hope is in Jesus, not in bricks and mortar. I, I brought one outfit to church today, not two. Our hope is in Jesus, not in convenience. Our budget is closer to balancing than it's been in over a year and a half. And someone should say amen, but don't worry about it. Our hope is not in budgets and money and dollars and cents. Our hope is in Jesus. Last Sunday, we had the highest attendance we've ever had in the history of Redeemer. But our hope is not in earthly, tangible joy. By the way, if you're visiting, we're so glad you're here. Don't mistake this statement, okay? But our hope is not in numbers that we can report to some spreadsheet somewhere. Our hope is in the Savior of the world who works through people who gather in His name. Last Sunday, we broke the the mythical 200 barrier. The one that you're not supposed to be able to break. The one that supposedly puts you in the top 20% of churches in America. That's just a laughable joke, isn't it? Like look around, we're the top net. anyway. But our hope is not in such accolades. Our hope is in Jesus, because you can have the best buildings, you can have the best brick and mortar, you can have the best shuttle van driver known to man. Thank you, Kyle Morris. Thank you, Brian Caldwell. You you can be one of the best. Come. Come, we need you. But you can have the best shuttle van driver. You can have the most comfortable chairs. You can have the best paint in the hallway. You can have a balanced budget. You can have money in the bank. You can have bottoms and seats. You can break attendance records. But if you don't have Jesus, it's all a sham because the Titans have all of that. And so do the Predators. And the sounds wish they did. And so does Vanderbilt. But anyway, none of that means Anything eternally, Jesus Christ and his salvation and his grace and his mercy is everything. So upon what does our hope rest? Jesus. Freedom from sin. Freedom from bondage and decay. Freedom from this world being our home. That's our hope. And that, friends, is what we invite you to. Often guys who preach the gospel are viewed as hateful, sweaty, arrogant, bigots i'm sweaty i want to retract all the other ones though okay listen this is our hope either jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be the children of god or he didn't and if he didn't we have nothing but if he did and if by faith we belong to him we have eternal hope So our invitation this morning, if you're here just kind of wondering, like, what are these new kooky people on Bonita Parkway all about? We're about this. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to build the church of God so that God would have a people who were loved by God and who bore, who bear much fruit for God. That's who Jesus is, and we want to invite you to this eternal hope of a Savior who knows your sin, knows your brokenness, knows your weakness knows your rebellion knows how dirty you are on the inside knows what you did last night and still says come to me and i'll give you rest still says come to me and i'll forgive your sin come to me and i'll love you in such a way that you will never be put to shame now I can't shortchange what this passage says because in verse 7 he goes on and he says, For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. What Peter is saying here in verse 7 and 8 is this. All that good news about Jesus is true. And all that invitation is true. But there are those who have rejected him. There are some of us in this room right now who reject him. And there are those who will reject him. And they will not receive the grace and the mercy and the salvation that comes to those who receive him. So what Peter is saying is how we respond to Jesus actually does matter. Eternity hangs in the balance. So if you're here today and you reject the claims of the gospel, you reject the claims of salvation through Christ, you don't believe that Jesus is God's son, you don't believe that he's the Lord, you don't believe that he's the Redeemer, you don't believe that he's the Savior, let me just say I'm so glad you're here. And I hope that in verse 6, 7, and 8, you hear an invitation. Come to him, and he'll never put you to shame. But don't treat him trivially, and don't reject him. Because there is an eternity that hangs in the balance. The hope of the church is that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And if you're wondering, why do you think Peter put verses 7 and 8 in there? I think you have to remember this. The people who received this letter were suffering at the hands of those who rejected Jesus. The people who received this letter were enduring hardship because of their faith in Jesus. And Peter, it's as if he's saying, remember the one that you believed in? Remember the hope that comes through Him? He knows those who reject Him. He knew that they would reject Him from the foundation of the world and it does not set His plan aside at all. You need not despair because there are those who reject Christ. The truth is of the identity and the work of Jesus does not hang in the balance by the number of people that accept or reject him. It's not as if the more popular Jesus is, the more true he is. He's not a popularity contest. He's not up for the latest CNN Straw poll: Jesus is Lord, and if his approval rating is two percent, he's still Lord. And as if his approval rating is 98 percent, he's still Lord. One day, there will be a day where all this remains are those who know him and love him and believe in him, and his approval rating will be 100 percent. And yet he has been Lord every step of the way we need not fear. The the work, the purpose, the mission, the identity, the salvation of Jesus does not hang in the balance. It's been the plan of God from before there was time. And it will be the plan of God forever. That Jesus and his people would worship the Lord forever. So before we leave this section, just, just hear these two truths one more time. If you offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ, they are acceptable. We'll come back to that. And if we're in Christ, he will not allow us to be put to shame. Our hope is in Jesus. So if you'd like to know more about who Christ is, the claims of his gospel, I would love to be honored to talk with you about that. Someone sitting beside you today, you can say, hey, can we talk about who Jesus is? I'd love to go to lunch. I'd love to go to breakfast. I'd love to have coffee. I'd love to just sit down and talk about the claims of Christ and what they mean. But if our hope is Christ, what does this mean for us? How does this shape who we are? And so that leads to our second point this morning, the identity of the church. In this section, Peter is working really, really hard to fill these Christians up with identity statements. Statements not of who they ought to be, but of who they are. Because I, as I said, throughout this scripture we see this, this theme that our actions spring from what we believe to be true about ourselves. let me see if I can demonstrate this. Yesterday, when it was about 120 degrees outside in the late afternoon, I was playing baseball with some kids in my neighborhood. My kids, some other kids. And in the middle of the game, one of the little boys just disappeared. He just walked away. And I said, hey, buddy, where are you going? Like, like, I had to yell it because he was like 100 feet away. But I said, I said, hey, buddy, where are you going? And he said, he turned around and he, again, not angrily, but projected his voice back and said, I'm terrible at baseball, and I'll never be good, and turned around and walked off. Faster than I could catch up with. Now, you know why that makes me sad? Because as long as he believes that's true, he never will perform or behave any differently. Right? And we all know that about ourselves. So I don't care if you like baseball or not, but let the illustration sit. How many of us say things, identity statements about ourselves that prevent us from being the people that Jesus saved us to be? I'm too unclean. I've sinned too much. How many of us project identity statements onto the church that prevent us from being who Jesus desires us to be? We're too small. Nobody there really loves Jesus. That place is just a bunch of hypocrites. See, I think what we believe to be true about ourselves will impact how we behave, how we live, what we think, what we do. So, hear what Peter says. He says, if you belong to Jesus, you are, verse 9, a chosen race. And I don't want to get all divisive about how predestined we are or we are not. But when the Bible says chosen, what it means is God set his love on you and that's intended to comfort you because your identity in Christ doesn't depend upon your ability to stay in Christ. It depends upon the grace of God which never fails. You are a chosen race. We are the people of God because He wants us to be His people. Yes, we believe. Yes, we have faith. Yes, we participate. Yes, we joyfully think He's the Lord. But His affection draws us. And no matter who rejects Him, His people are kept by Him. Peter says you are a chosen race. Everyone who's in Christ is part of God's people whom He will keep. A royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Those who faithfully represent Jesus. Who represent God. Who stand before God and represent Him to the world. We are royal priesthood. We can hear the words of God. We can believe the words of God. We are a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people devoted to Jesus Christ. A people for His own possession. I think the cry of my generation and of that millennial generation just under me is that we all want to belong somewhere. We all want to believe that we fit, that we found our place, that our shoe has found its right mold. And Peter says, look, in Christ you belong to God. You are His own possession. He loves you. He cares for you. You belong to Him. Verse 10. You once were not a people, but now you are God's people. In Christ, we are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are the recipients of God's mercy. I don't know, man. Maybe that just sounds like a bunch of religious gobbledygook. But what Peter wants the followers of Jesus to believe, that if we have Christ, we have a place, and we have an identity, and we have a calling. We are those whom God has loved. We are those whom God has set His affection upon. We represent, we can come before God as royal priesthood. We are a nation set apart for His own purposes. We are His people. We have received His mercy. So when you think of the church, what do you think of? The people whom I gather with, At Redeemer Church, we're God's people. God claims us as His own. We're the recipients of God's mercy. So we don't have to perform our way into God's favor, but His kind mercy has been given to us. We're the race and the priesthood and the nation that God delights in. We are God's own possession. So what does our identity say about us? It says that we are God's family. It says that God delights when we come into His presence. It says that when we worship the Lord, He finds joy in that it says that when we gather as his people he cares for us he lavishes his mercy upon us he will not leave us and nothing will destroy us I mean that's an identity I want to sign up for it's an identity I want to sign up for So I just challenge you here's here's a point of application What do you believe to be true about the church of Jesus? In particular, what do you believe to be true about this local church? What identities are we going to latch onto so that they shape who we are? So that all leads to the third point, the work of the church if knowing who we are shapes how we live, then what are the things that the Lord wants us to be busy doing? If we are the people of God, if we are the household of God, what are the things that God wants us to be busy doing? I'll give you three things, and then we'll look at it in the Scripture. He wants us to be busy worshiping Him. He wants us to be busy obeying His Word and He wants us to be busy sharing His grace with others. If we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, if we're God's people who've received God's mercy, then He wants us to be busy worshiping Him because worship flows from these identities. He wants us to be busy. Obeying His Word because obedience to His Word flows from these identities and He wants us to be busy sharing His grace with others. Verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that our worship through the work of the Holy Spirit which brings us to Christ our worship makes is acceptable to God. So do you hear that? When we praise God in prayer, when we praise God in song, when we praise God together, when we praise God in our lives, when we obey Him, when we live for His glory, when we submit to Him, when we follow Him, that's acceptable not because we've had a good day, not because we read the Bible this morning, not because we're, we're checking some boxes and, and dotting some I's and crossing some T's, that's acceptable because of Jesus. And if we know that our worship is acceptable because of Jesus, then we will worship God. Be busy worshiping God. Be busy obeying His Word. When Peter talks about offering spiritual sacrifices, I don't think he's just talking about coming to worship. But I think he's talking about how we live our lives. I think he's talking about how we live our lives together and when we're scattered out. I think he's talking about what we do. And when what we do is in line with what God desires and we do it through faith in Jesus, it's acceptable as worship to God. So let's be a people who try to, in our families, in our work, in our Neighborhoods, on our athletic teams, in our extracurricular activities, and how we spend our money, and in all that we do, let's be a people who are devoted to being radically biblical through faith in Jesus because we know that that is acceptable to God. We don't have to be special people for God to receive our lives as acceptable worship. We come through Jesus, we align with His Word, He receives. He delights. Third, if we know who we are in Christ, we will be busy sharing his grace. If we know who we are in Christ, we'll be busy sharing his grace. Look at verse 9 again. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. To whom do we proclaim the excellencies of God through Christ? To everyone. To everyone. We proclaim them in the church and we proclaim them outside the church. We proclaim them here, there, and everywhere. We proclaim them when we're gathered and when we're scattered. We proclaim the grace of God everywhere because we are a people of mercy and not a people of Earning God's favor. We're a people of mercy and not a people of performance. So God has set us apart as a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation so that we would proclaim His excellencies. So that we would extol and honor Him. So it is the purpose of God that our lives would be filled with worship, with Biblical obedience and with sharing God's grace. It is what God has for His church. He wants us to be holy people who glorify Him in everything. He wants us to be children of mercy who have a purpose to proclaim His great mercy. Now I... Have been a pastor long enough to know that when I start talking about proclaiming God's mercy, you all shut down. Like, no, nope, not me. Don't do that. I don't have that gift. I can't hang out with lost people because I'm too. I gotta. I gotta keep my, my family, clean and pure. I don't have that gift of, of sharing the gospel. Somebody else got to do that. God could never use us to help people meet Jesus. that's That's just not how it works. I can't help but think that often we bail on things that God delights to do through us because we're like the little boy I played baseball with yesterday. I can't do this and God will never use me. So I'm out. But hear what Peter says. You're a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a people for God's own possession because God knew from before the foundation of the world that you could be one who extols his great grace by how you live and what you say and what you speak. I just want us to believe that the God who gave us a new identity is the God who wants to use us. And I want us to commit that we will use every fabric of everything that we have to extol the great grace of God in worship, in obedience, in spiritual sacrifice, and in sharing His grace with others. Remember the last line of this passage. You once were not a people, but now you are. Do you hear what that's saying? People who aren't God's people become God's people through Jesus. You once had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. It is the plan of God and the work of God to build His kingdom and to build His church by showing His mercy to those who haven't received us, received His mercy. And how are they going to receive it? Through we who have, who extol His greatness. So I'm challenging you. I'm challenging you. Will you join us in becoming a people who in our personal lives, in our corporate witness, and in the things we do right here on this piece of property facing into this piece of Hendersonville, we extol the excellencies of Jesus. Will you commit to join us in that? Will you commit to believe that God desires to use us in that endeavor? I think he does. I think he does. I think it would be the joy of God to see people meet Christ through Redeemer Church. I think it would be the joy of God to see your neighbors meet Christ through your witness to Him. I think it would be the joy of God for tons of little boys and little girls to hear the gospel of Jesus during vacation Bible school in eight days and nine days and 10 days and 11 days and 12 days and hear of Christ and believe. I think that would be the joy of God. And what Peter seems to be saying is that that when God uses us in the ways that only God can use us to extol the greatness of God, that is, is, is something that spurs us forward look I struggle deeply on this whole extol the excellencies of Jesus thing talk freely about the gospel just to point it out to you yesterday I was at the swimming pool in my neighborhood and I walked up to a man and I said hey I'm Jamie it's nice to meet you and this is what he said he goes you must be a pastor I'm like, I don't even have a shirt on. My t-shirt can't say, like, I'm a pastor. And I thought, wow. And so we had a nice conversation, and, and, and we walked away, and I went, what an opportunity to invite that man to Redeemer, or ask him if he has a pastor, or talk about, like, I just totally just botched it. So welcome to the club, okay? Welcome to the club. But I believe that God wants to use the little things and the little expression of his corporate work in this group of people for others to meet Jesus. So I had a text message this week and this is how it ended. And I, and I want you to hear this as an encouragement of how God works. Okay? I had a text message this week. And it said, well, so some Young Life folks went on a hiking trip. And earlier this week, I heard that someone gave his life to Christ on that hiking trip. And I was like, that's awesome. Several of Redeemer people were on that hiking trip. But then I got a text message this week that connected it back to the life of Redeemer. Hey, we were on the mountain and we felt like we needed to call these kids to think about the gospel. So we took something that you said once in a sermon about Ephesians 2 and we had them meditate on Ephesians 2 overnight and like insert their name into all those passages. And so I'm just sitting there and I'm going, all right, so... Something that I don't even remember saying. Somebody remembered. The Spirit brought it to their mind on a mountain in Colorado at the right time. Some kids did that. And later in the week, someone confessed their sin and believed in Jesus. Yeah, amen. But please don't think I'm like some exemplary pastor. I've already told you how I fail over here. But if that story doesn't convey that God uses God's people to extol God's salvation, I don't know what will convince us of that, right? Isn't that what we should take away from that? I think that's what we should take away from that. So be encouraged that God wants to use us, we who are his chosen race, to tell of his excellencies everywhere we go. And let's believe that so much. Let's believe that it's our identity so much that we act upon it. Father, I pray earnestly earnestly that you would come and overwhelm this group of people with who you are in such a way that we would believe the gospel and see ourselves as your children whom you love, whom you will never leave, and whom you desire to use. Would you cause us all to believe that? Wherever we need to enter in, if it's entering in by confessing faith for the first time, Lord, do that. If it's entering in by choosing to believe what you say is true, and aligning with your will, then do that. If it's entering in by believing that you desire to use us because of who we are, then do that. Father, I'm pleading with you to work. I'm pleading with you to work powerfully in this room now. And I'm pleading all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.